Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. This episode is the next installment of the Spicy Money series, and I get to talk with Melanie Klein in this episode, who is a sought-after empowerment and mindset coach uh, who works with individuals and teams across the country to really align and integrate their personal and professional spheres for increased success and abundance without compromising their joy. And in addition to that, she's also a writer, a speaker, a professor of sociology and women's studies. She's been in that space for, you know, more than 20 years. Um, And she offers such an amazing uh, viewpoint on what money stories mean to the collective, where they started. You know, we go in this episode, we go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution um, and talk about what what we experienced as a society um, that has led to these competing ideas of, you know, is it pure and righteous and holy to be in poverty? Or is it pure and righteous and holy to be in abundance, right? And where did these two competing ideas come from? And in this conversation, we don't just take it to that high level. We bring it in to our individual heart space and what that has looked like in each of our own experiences of life. So I would love to hear your feedback on this episode. Do reach out um, to me, to Melanie. Let us know what resonates for you and what your upbringing was like. You know, there's so much to be learned from our money stories, uh, from when we were children and from our parents and our grandparents and really society as a whole. You know, what collective were you born into when it comes to money stories and what choices are you making now to shift that for yourself so that you can live in a space of prosperity and abundance exactly where you are? Um, So yes, this is fascinating conversation. And I also want to point to Melanie's TEDx talk um, that she gave on empowerment and freedom. And that is in the show notes um, and you can search for it. It's on the TED website. And I just really encourage you to go check it out and let us know. Let us know what resonates. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, everyone, to the next edition of the Spicy Money series, uh, where I am talking with Melanie Klein today. She's an empowerment and success coach. And we are going to talk about socioeconomics of money in some really interesting ways. And I cannot wait to dive into this topic of inclusion and who deserves to have money and what that even means and and really open up the conversation in a whole new way. So Melanie, thank you for being here with me. Would you introduce yourself so people know who we're talking to? Yes. Thanks so much for having me today, Hannah. I appreciate it. And I'm excited to get in this conversation too, um, because not only am I an empowerment and success coach, but I am also a sociology and gender women's studies professor and have been for 20 years. Additionally, I am a writer and I have um, edited four anthologies on empowerment, embodiment, resilience um, from an intersectional perspective. And I have spent 27 plus years doing um, an incredible amount of on the grounds work uh, related to social equity, social justice, et cetera. So um, to be able to come here and talk about money today, <laughs> um, kind of combining all of this is a, is really exciting for me. So thank you. Uh, yes. Yeah, so let's dive right in because 
I mean, just truly your body of work, right? This that you've spent literal decades in this space, um, and recently just gave a TEDx talk about it, um, which will be linked in the comments as well. So you should definitely, audience, go listen to that TEDx talk um, because, again, it's just it is this topic, right? That's another facet of what we're talking about right now. So give us a, a sense of what your idea is of what it means um, to, to be empowered, to bring this, this sense of um, social and economic justice to the public. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I think a lot about when I first went into college and began to learn specifically about um, the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> that mm. that was my, you know, really huge area of focus for an incredibly long time. And as I was preparing for our conversation today, I thought to myself, you know, that there was a lot that occurred there that really began to change the relationship between the quote average person, the populace and money. This is the time where individuals were moving off of the land, off of farms, where there was some sense of ownership and autonomy over what they were creating, what they were harvesting, etc., and moving into essentially wage labor, right? Where there wasn't ownership over the product. There wasn't ownership over the process to create the product, they were now exchanging their labor for a wage. And as I was thinking about our conversation around accessibility and wealth and, you know, mindset, I thought, you know, that that was a really pivotal moment. Um, particularly, I'm talking here in the United States, which is where mm -hmm. we're podcasting, about what began to happen there, how people viewed work, how people viewed money, how people viewed their ability to have. There was such a stark right, um, dichotomy between owners and workers. That is the primary, um, you know, distinction that's made. And if we look at, you know, Marx's work, Karl Marx talked about, I mean, there, there, there was a little more complex, but if we really distill his work, the idea of the owners and the workers, the bourgeoisie uh, and the proletariat. And I think that that idea that you either are those who have or you're someone who does not still um, plays a really big role in the way that I think people view their ability to have money, the way they feel about people who have money, what it means mm -hmm. to have money. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I just wanted to start there is just how did that sort of, you know, again, that distinction, that boundary between those classes occur and how does that still have an impact today? And I think it's a, it's really one of the fundamental aspects of, you know, individuals who still see themselves as I'm not one of those people or I couldn't have... Uh, and if I do, what does that mean? Oftentimes with a negative connotation, right? Because we're also uh, socialized. We have to understand that we become members of the culture through this process of learning. We have our family of origin, our community, our neighborhood, religion, work, school, politics. We can go on and on. All of these entities, these groups, these individuals are teaching us from the moment we're born, what it means to be a, quote, competent member of the culture. Mm -hmm. Those ideas, those beliefs, those values, as well as those norms or expectations of behavior. And, you know, tons of research shows that in families um, where, you know, primarily if we want to <laughs> use the term middle class, which is pretty much outdated, but nonetheless, let's, let's go with that term, right? Uh, workers, those who are not part of the, you know, elite, those who are not going to Ivy League schools, et cetera, or even private institutions. Um, in many ways, right, part of what came out of that distinction that I shared around the proletariat and the bourgeoisie is the way that you're socialized to see yourself as either a leader or a follower or to relate to money um, still is ingrained in this notion of people with money are bad. They're probably doing bad things. Um, mm -hmm. And the truth is people are doing bad things, <laughs> quote, bad things all along uh, the spectrum. But um, right. you know, that there there is a sort of a vilification and then there becomes a certain limitation. And so it's exciting for me, you know, to have someone like you with a podcast like this and doing the Spicy Money series and more and more people, um, specifically marginalized people, talking about actually the importance of creating intergenerational wealth, mm -hmm. uh, the importance of actually creating a new 
relationship with money, which is essentially um, we are de-socializing and re-socializing ourselves to have this new relationship in order to um, create more wealth for ourselves and be able to pass that on to create more wealth in our communities. Oh, okay. So, so much, so much in there. <laughs> yeah. uh, like truly it's, um, you are speaking exactly to a lot of the, um, the legacy, the generational money stories that, yeah. that we are still, we're dealing with today. And that in my work that I am seeing people break through and mm -hmm. it's so important to, um, have that awareness of what's yours, like what's from an individual perspective, you know, what's my money story? What's my experience mm -hmm. of money? But what was my parents' experience and my grandparents? And, you know, all the way back, like started the industrial revolution. I uh, was like chuckling at that because I just read an article uh, the other day that was fascinating about the move from horticultural to agricultural to industrial. Um, oh yeah. And oh my gosh, my mind was just like, like it was amazing. And there is, there is a sense of exactly what you're saying, this, the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat split. Um, mm -hmm. And I love that you're calling that out as a you know, we still have this vilification of the upper class, upper class, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes yeah. um, for listeners, this, this vilification of if you have money, you, you have it because you have been taking advantage of people. Mm -hmm. yes. And if you, if you don't have money, you know, somehow you are, um, you have less that you can work with, but at least you're, you're morally superior, right? There's, so we've got this, this split. And if we, can look back, you know, it's, it's so ingrained in our, in our hearts and minds as this, as the societal story that in order to move through it and past it, we really do need to, um, like you said, like re rewrite this story, mm -hmm. right? We need to decondition these old stories and recondition into something new. Um, because the truth is from my, from my perspective and, and the work that I do in the world, the truth is money is a tool. Money is a tool for whatever you want to use it for. And if the people who have these deep seated, um, you know, visions for a better future, allow themselves to have more money, allow themselves to see that money is a tool for good in the world and for, you know, bringing more inclusion and for lifting into generational safety and security. And for, you know, like, this is for me. You take on that, this is for me identity, not this is for everyone else. That is how we start to heal the collective in a different way. Um, so, yeah, I, I want you to I want you to dive more into this uh, industrial revolution piece because I think there's, as with everything, the duality of this is what happened, right? We did experience the exploitation of the working class. And we also experienced opportunity in a way that that did not happen before in the horticultural and agricultural ages, mm -hmm. right? Um especially, I'm going to go here too, especially women. That is, you know, especially in the agricultural phase of, of human history, that is when women were really treated as property. Yes. So I, there's so many things I'm going to try to have them all sort of uh, different tabs open in my mind. Right. Um, so let me, let me go to a couple of different places. I think the most immediate thing that you said that I want to touch on is we see, obviously, statistically around the globe that the more that specifically women are able to work, create money, contribute, um, we see that the entire overall health and functionality of the uh, society goes up. 
in a positive direction, right? They are directly correlated. Um, equity and equality for women, which includes the ability to to make money, to um, keep their 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 earnings, to invest their earnings. The way that it's used is used differently, and it tends to benefit the whole. So that we see everywhere. Right. Um, we have tons of research on that. The other thing, you know, that's interesting, um, going back to you know Karl Marx's work. Um, the distinction between the bourgeoisie and proletariat, he talks about how class consciousness is something that's important. And at the time that he was writing, right, he was talking about overthrowing the system. Um, and he also talked about the idea of false class consciousness. And that's what I actually want to focus on, because mm -hmm. there are two different things going on. One, I think there still is um, across the board and, and probably would vary, obviously, by what region the country we're looking at um, the suspicion, <clears throat> the sort of um, stereotyping and the skepticism around people with money still exists, right? Which very much comes from, from what we were talking about here in the Industrial Revolution. And at the same time, what's really fascinating with our media landscape, something that obviously did not exist in the 1800s or early 1900s, we have false class consciousness because we have all of these images and lifestyles that are constantly being sold. There is, you know, lifestyle marketing has been around for a very long time where it's not about selling a product or service. It's really about selling an identity, offering a lifestyle um, that a lot of people, right, have developed this sort of affinity and this identification with individuals at the top of the spectrum, uh, a lifestyle they don't actually live. And because we can also go into debt in, in our culture, um, a lot of people have this bifurcation. They have this false class consciousness where they don't actually identify with the position that they're in. And it's very difficult to make change if you don't actually even have an awareness of where you are. So it's really interesting to see that on one hand, there is still that vilification, that suspicion around money and people with money. And then on the other hand, we also have this false class consciousness where people are sold this idea that they too can be, let's say like the, like the Kardashians, right? Which is, you know, what everyone has sort of been talking about for the last 15 years. And you too can go ahead and dress this way. And not only you, you can, but you should. So right. you have that occurring simultaneously, which is really fascinating. And then third, we also have a situation where, um, you know, a lot of people really have no understanding of the flow and the use of money, um, the idea of investments or savings, or uh, don't even understand the idea of necessarily interest rates, right? And and I'm talking specifically on credit cards, right? The various mm -hmm. incredibly high interest rates. I know for myself, um, that was not something that I learned at all. And when I became a sociology professor teaching, uh, you know, on what we're talking about right here, you know, pointing out like and asking how many of you um, were actually given a money education? How many of you had families that understood money at all and were able to assist? Um, and the numbers tended to be fairly low. And right around, hmm, I think it was 2006 or seven, I actually started seeing that there were um, money classes being offered for children, mm -hmm. right? I forget what the organizations were, but there were groups of people, right? recognizing the importance of allowing individuals who came from, you know, working class families, lower income families, or even just the average income family, whatever that means, right? It's a relative right. metric, um, how to use money. And it made me think about a time when I was in undergraduate school and one of my friends, um, she went to buy a condo and this was in a in a fairly swanky part of Los Angeles. And at the time, the condo was only like $80,000, um, which is unheard of now in that part of right. town. Uh, this is sometime maybe in the mid 1990s, I guess. And her parents gave her $10,000 for the down payment. And I think her mortgage was around $900 at the time. And her father kept saying, you know, Melanie, you really should be investing in property, you know, just uh, shouldn't be paying rent. And I remember I had such a level of frustration because to get $10,000, to take $10,000 to put a down payment on anything and then have a $900 mortgage, 
And I think at the time I was paying $250 in rent um, being in undergraduate school, that that just was not a possibility for me. There was no way I was going to be able to do that. And over the year, seeing the amount of equity, I think in five years, um, her equity was um, $80,000. So it was equal to the price of her condo at the time that she bought it. Mm -hmm. And from there, going on to buying others and um, having her father who had done quite a bit in real estate, um, guide her, uh, advise her, um, you know, taking money from one property and buying in another. And nah, I would say within 12 years, she had said to me, oh my gosh, you know, on paper, I'm worth a million dollars. I'm over, you know, it's over a million dollars. And to see that she had started with this $10,000 and in about 15 years owned, you know, well over several million dollars worth of property, um, it was so jarring to me. It was just so clear to me that it wasn't just about being able to access that money, but it was also about understanding what money does mm-hmm. um, and that there was just this stark dichotomy and how important it is for us to not only you know deconstruct and reconstruct a new relationship to money, um, but also to reconstruct that narrative and to then actually be given a proper education about how does this work? How do we actually make plans? How do we grow, right, our wealth? And it's fascinating for my ex-husband and I to think about our son. He has a completely different relationship and experience of money than we did. Mm-hmm. Um, his father, uh, his, his father's mother was a single mother of three children in the 1960s. And she literally heated up soup using an iron, Okay, would put a can of soup on an iron. That's how he grew up, right? That we both had a lot of money insecurity. And our goal was to, you know, (laughs) really um, create a new legacy for ourselves and uh, for the child that we were planning on having. And it's fascinating how my son moves through the world with a completely different idea of what he can have, what he can create, what is possible for him. And that was, I will say, that was the biggest challenge for me. It it wasn't even about earning and then using the money. But the first piece for me was changing my relationship to my havingness, Um, that, that this is something that could occur. And I'll be honest, coming from an academic and social justice background, um, not to mention, you know, coming from a blue collar family, (laughs) everything telling me not only that I couldn't, but that I shouldn't. Right. Um, and when I, you know, becoming a single mom and, you know, granted, listen, my, my ex-husband is very much in the picture, but let's, let's also point out that I was, had my son, you know, primarily living at my house, primary earner there. I, that was the big impetus for me to really, knock over (laughs) all of those ideas was, hey, I'm a single mother and I am not going to, I'm not going to stay in this position where things have to be a struggle. Um, And even though I was earning uh, quite well, you know, I had a great career. I was earning over six figures. It was certainly not enough to take care of my son and I living in Los Angeles, planning for college, having aging And so that was the thing that was like that first pin that I pulled out that allowed me to unravel all of that stuff was, hey, as a single mom, I have a very serious responsibility to begin to move through this material um, quickly and efficiently and create something different. Um, So and that's what I've done. But that piece, right, uh, Mm -hmm. of, you know, really imagining was huge, something that does not exist with my son because he's had a completely different experience. Um, and my mentor, who's also a mentor of yours, I remember very early on, she said, you know, um, people who grew up without money insecurity, they have a very different mindset. And I, it took a Mm -hmm. long time and it was very frustrating to begin to, to reimagine, Right. So there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff in there. Right. Yes. And I, you know, I've been, I've been teasing this apart for my entire career um, because it is, it is so interesting Um, because I, I grew up not exactly the same, but in, but that, um, that same sense of money insecurity, it was very strong. Uh, My parents were entrepreneurs 
and we owned you know multiple businesses and money was still i would i would call it like blue collar entrepreneurial mm-hmm. right where they were working extremely hard um in like manual labor repainting homes in Arizona and Phoenix Arizona where it's 120 degrees in the summer um you know out there hard work when marketing needed to happen it was like literally I, I would be one of the ones like putting flyers in mailboxes, um, right. Like when I was a child, that type of stuff, like, and money was extremely insecure. And that was the same across most of my extended family. So I have this, I have this like entrepreneurial background and like, um, deep, like this is, this is part of who I am in a very deep way. And there was also that deconstruction of that story of it has to be hard and oh, that yeah. that actual success is not for you. Those were stories that had to be mm-hmm. rewired. And in the financial space, I'm also a woman in a highly male dominated field where I I make up about like women are about 15% of financial advisors. And so that those continuous messages of this is not for you Right. I, I had to, I had to just let those melt away truly um, in order to even create something new in order to, like you said, reimagine, let myself even dream of a different possibility because that's where we, that's where we can create from. If we can, if we can own the fact that this is for me, it's not for someone else. This is for me. Kind of what we said at the very beginning, right? Like mm-hmm. that, that is what gives you that, that footing. Okay. I can do it. I can see the next step towards this new thing that I'm imagining. So I want to hear what that was like for you, because you, you touched on um, the academic side. This this is another really interesting um correlation that we have here. I was I was actually a musician. I still consider myself a musician. My degree is in flute performance. Um, a <laughs> lot of my friends are are university professors um in music. So there's the double whammy of starving artist and you know academic uh, yep. that can that can tend to right like ooh money is. I can live like a college student for my whole life, right? Like that can be the cycle that you get into. Um, And so it's very, very interesting to explore like, okay, how did you, how did you start to imagine something new? How did you do that for yourself now? Well, I'll answer that, but I do want to, you know, when you were talking about, you know, living like a college student forever, starving artist, that sort of trope, if you will, um, something I was thinking about uh, as we were having this conversation was also the morality tied mm-hmm. around money. There's also an interesting dichotomy around that that I wanted to mention is, you know, to a certain degree, when you talk about the starving artist, um, there is a form of romanticization that happens, right? Like yeah. how we romanticize those who don't have a lot. Um, and so much of that also comes with religion, right? Um, right? I mean, if we're looking at colonization, <laughs> right? If we're looking at oppression, um, you know, institutional religion played a huge part in making people feel, well, I'll be rewarded in the next life if I'm good in this one, you know, right. that I trust that this is what it's supposed to be and that there is morality and poverty. Well, on the other hand, there's also the the piece, if we look at the Protestant work ethic, where, you know, r- right around that time, the idea was, well, um, if you are wealthy, you must be in God's favor. So mm-hmm. there's both of those things uh, that are happening, right. which is so fascinating, right? And um, a lot of people um, do create certain personas and identities around the purity and the morality of being in poverty um, and, you know, getting by. 
And then on the other side of the fence are also those people who look down on people who don't have much because it's like, ah, right. There's a sense that we are better than. So there's a lot of that stuff intertwined. And if people look at their money stories um, and they listen to this episode or re-listen, I think they will be able to actually plug their money stories into an even larger framework than just, you know, what was happening in my family of origin around me, but how does that then connect to the dominant consciousness? How does that, you know, really connect to the collective conversation? So hopefully people will begin to, um, you know, gain some additional pieces that will illuminate their own life. And And, for me, that was, oh, go ahead. Well, I wanted to just jump in there because that, the way you just articulated that was so perfect. And it was like, that was it. Like that's the, that's the frame (laughs) of, you know, there are, there's a section of society that believes poverty is morality. And then there's the other section of society that says, if you're in God's favor, then you will be prosperous. And then if you don't have money, you are then somehow damaged and there is something wrong with you. And so both sides, if you are entrenched on either side, you are making everyone else that's not like you completely wrong. Yep. (laughs) So that's just so like, I I knew that, right? And, but the way you articulated it was like, yes, okay, there we go. So if you can see that your own mindset around money, if you believe deep down that you must be in poverty to be pure, mm-hmm. you are going to make anyone with money, with more money than you inherently wrong. And if you believe on this other side that in, or like I am meant to be prosperous and not in a way that everyone is meant to be prosperous, but the the good are meant to be prosperous. Mm-hmm. Those of us who are moral are meant to be prosperous. Then everyone else who is struggling, they're bad. They're doing something wrong and they don't deserve it, right? And so we create this, this scale of justice in our own minds um, mm-hmm. that is all a figment of our imagination, well, it's also, it's so utterly human, right? Because right. as you were describing it that way, right? You were saying we make other people wrong. I was thinking of the concept of the in-group, out-group mentality, which is mm-hmm. yet so utterly human. You know, um, I've studied at length what what are the dynamics, what are the patterns that we see among people in groups? And we, you know, individuals are part of many, many different groups, right? For individuals to be part of groups is an essential component of being human, right? And one of the ways that we begin to um, qualify groups is with the in-group, out-group mentality, where the in-group is the one that you belong to, whatever that group is. It's either those who are poor, those that are wealthy of a particular, you know, religion, race or ethnicity, so on and so forth. And then there's the out-group which is, it's like us and them, (laughs) you know, we people, those people, and they're a huge component of the in-group, out-group mentality is, you know, that there's an adversarial nature. There is a certain suspicion. Mm -hmm. There's also a double standard, right? Where behavior in one group of the in-group is seen as, you know, uh, you know, worthy of respect, worthy of admiration, seen as right. And that very same behavior in the other group is seen as bad or wrong, right? So we have double standards. We have the adversarial nature. Oftentimes the in-group, out-group mentality goes to the point where we see it as enemies, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and there's all the propaganda and mindset that goes with, and the imagery that goes with the in-group, um, out-group division. And, you know, whether it's competing high school basketball teams to warring countries to, mm-hmm. you know, various religions or classes, um, that is just an utterly human thing to do. Um, for me, part of, you know, really going into deep personal and professional development, um, doing mindset work, expansive consciousness work, um, you know, consciousness raising was a beginning to remove those barriers, um, beginning to remove those divisions as much as I can as a human, mm-hmm. because it can be um, just utterly tragic what occurs, right? Because the in-group, out-group mentality also is correlated with group think, which is where 
we as individuals no longer think as individuals. We begin to think as part of this larger group entity. And oftentimes the behaviors that we engage in as members of a group who are thinking as one unit and vilifying another, um, you know, it can be it can be pretty extreme. So what you described is very, very, very much the classic in-group, out-group mentality. And I would very much encourage listeners to think about not only their their money story and then plugging that into, as we were saying, that sort of the dominant framework and understanding what are the groups and institutions, what is the historical and political context for this as well, but how does this really directly influence my behavior and the way that I relate and the way that I create, you know, these tropes and these almost caricatures how does that not only limit me? How does that limit those around me? How do I how do I solidify these sort of limitations on a much grander scale? Which is why my TEDx, right? I talk about conscious empowerment. Um, it's huge for me where we, you know, we begin to de-socialize and re-socialize, we consciousness raise, we transform as individuals, but you know, I'm also talking about collective liberation because every single thought, right, triggers, you know, tends to trigger an emotion, which then leads to a certain action. And those actions don't only have an impact in our own life, right, but every action we take, right, either opens up or closes possibilities for those around us as well. And so hopefully, you know, people are starting to, you know, think about, all the variables that you and I are sort of presenting here, all the variables, how do they uniquely play into your own equation? And how, what result is at the end of that equation? And if you're looking to have a different result, how do you begin to either rework or exchange the variables in your equation? That's what I'm really hoping that will people be, will begin to have. And to go to your question, um, that's what I began to do as well. I mean, I really began to think about how could this look different? What is it that I really want to create? What does that require of me? And for me, um, it was having guides and mentors who I could really look up to and um, beginning to challenge myself to go honestly to the deepest level I'd ever gone in terms of what is this framework of reference that I have? What is this lens through which I view the world? And not just intellectually understanding and being able to, you know, sort of pinpoint here are the components of it, but beginning to embody something else, really beginning to have that lens removed, replacing it with someone else, with something else, right? Because we can't just go, oh, okay, that's what my lens is. These are my thought patterns, my behavioral patterns, and I won't do those anymore because that's not the way the human <laughs> works. We need to replace it. We need to be clear on what we're replacing it with, and we actually have to fully embody it um, and then allow that to move into new actions. And so I spent quite a bit of time you know, doing that um, over and over again and repatterning and Coming up an incredible amount of <laughs> fear and worry um, and being guided to really consider, okay, so it's, it's it's that almost very cliche thing that we say in personal development spaces, like the risk of staying the same versus mm -hmm. the risk of changing. And it was very clear to me that, you know, remaining the same or somewhat the same would only be safe and comfortable for a short period of time, but in the long term, there would be more pain and it would be a greater risk. And so um, I, I, it really required an incredible amount of dedication. It required a very clear why. Mm -hmm. I was very clear on my why. It took uh, an incredible amount of consistent and steady practice to be able to be with a discomfort in my entire being, not just in my brain. Um, and I will say that everything was completely transformed for me. Um, there was never really a moment that I had where anything that I imagined <laughs> that could happen that was bad or scary ever came close to it. Mm -hmm. Um and it became the most liberating thing 
I was ever able to do. Um, but it was incredibly, it required an incredible amount of diligence. Yeah. So what you're describing, I mean, I can, it's, it's so that experience, right. Of becoming aware and then Mm -hmm. making a choice, right. I feel like that, that was the same for me too. It's like, okay, I have this awareness that I want to do something differently and it feels really effing terrifying to actually yes. step through. And so what do I need? And that I I did the very same thing, like hiring mentors and guides and consistently, consistently looking, consistently um, bringing up those stories, like intentionally moving through things that were very uncomfortable right and always like okay this is the next step what what's coming up what even with sales um in my business putting myself out there having conversations having trying new things and having it not go well right and like consistently looking at what was my response how how was i feeling uncomfortable what's coming up for me what thoughts are trying to come back up like you know feelings of deserving, feelings of worthiness, feelings of they don't like me, feelings of, oh my God, everyone's going to leave. I'm going to be abandoned. I'm going to be alone and I'm going to die in a hole, right? Like that's, right. That's the part that you're saying like, okay, that's not true, but that's that fear, that spiraling fear is what stops us a lot of times from trying again and trying again and trying again. Um, And what I wanted to call out from what you just said, two things um, was one, the embodiment, right? So that is the, that's the scary part, I think, uh, for a lot of people who haven't um, made the choice to take the action. It's, it's like, I don't know how it's going to feel. Mm-hmm. And it, that's right. You don't know how it's going to feel until you do it and you survive it. And then you can, oh, this is okay, right? Like it, it's a process and the embodiment of something new requires that we you know, have a new input. So we try something new to your point about the equation. Mm-hmm. Let's take out A and put in C and see what happens. Right. right. You, have to, you have to feel it. You have to feel it. Well, also <laughs> That's the I embodiment. Think- yeah, I think what you described that, you know, we don't know what that's going to look like or feel like. Um, another thing that was really powerful in this process was, you know, using our creativity, um, right? It's like we we need to replace it with something else. And if we haven't had or, you know, experienced that something else, then we go into imagining it. And that was part of, you know, what was offered to me, like, hey, you know, people who have not grown up with this kind mm-hmm. of scarcity or these fears or these storylines, um, they think and they are, right? They are moving through the world in a completely different way. What would that be like? What would that look like? Using the imagination to actually support and build us up as opposed to, you know, stay, keeping us where we are or, <laughs> you know, creating, like you said, dying in a hole alone, creating that imagery. And so um, it really required me to um, unplug from certain identities that I had, um, become familiar with and enjoy to a certain degree, such as, you know, the life is hard and you were talking about, you know, work, things have to be hard, you know, when we work and, you know, what did I get out of that storyline? And also, you know, my edgy persona, my angsty persona, which were very much a large part of who I had been since um, a teenager and going, oh, okay. All right. I'm going to have to let go of some that I, I will have to go into this creative place to, go into some optimism, to go into some possibility, to go into, you know, um, infinity versus, you know, sort of this idea that everything is very finite. And that was huge for me, um, is starting to imagine, right? So if we have not been in that, we can begin to create pictures. We can begin to tap into certain feelings. Like, what would it be like to have those things? What would it feel like? Can we 
can we consciously choose, right, to step into that feeling, into that embodiment, as opposed to embodying the fear, because we know that fear and worry doesn't create <laughs> any of the good stuff that we want anyway, right? It will usually uh, make, you know, elude us even longer. So that was, that was, that was crucial as well, is to, you know, really begin to use my creativity in a way that helps support where I wanted to go, um, help me feel differently, quell the sensations that were happening in the body, getting under the um, thoughts, getting under the feelings and just allowing them to be sensations that were moving through and moving out. And that's where, you know, I tell people you, it's, it's great to do the mindset work. It's great to, you know, think differently, choose different words, but you also have to get comfortable with what is happening in the body so that we're not suppressing, so that we're not pushing things down and, you know, <laughs> having ourselves get sick, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a, it's a beautiful combination of the, the mental, the, right, the emotional, the physical, the energetic. Um, and I think there's a certain amount of courage that needs to happen to go into that because it is opening. It's like, it can feel so big and sometimes overwhelming to go in there. And if we are not able to afford guides or mentors, you know, I will say there is a ton of work. There are podcasts like this. There are books. There are things that are much more accessible to people who maybe are starting in a place where the idea of hiring mentors will just fucking piss them off to hear, right? Like, oh, yeah. well, <laughs> uh, but I, I just want to point out there are tons of resources. There's tons of information. There are tons of people um, offering practices and, you know, creating work that is accessible. The key is though, <laughs> the key is to seek that out and to be consistent and to take the action along with the intellectualization or anything else, right? It has to go beyond something that we're reading, something that we're understanding. It has to be something that we're doing, something that yes. we're living. And yes. I think that's where people, um, they don't merge that fully. So, you know, whoever is listening, if they cannot afford a coach or a mentor or even a program, I would say there are plenty of teachings. There are plenty of ideas in this mm -hmm. podcast to start right. to consider, right? Um, but you have to attend to that regularly and consistently, and you have to pair that with action. Action, action, action. Yes, you can go to the library and check out books, right? Yeah, you can listen to so many different podcasts. Um, most of the most of the people that I personally know in this space of wanting to help heal and transform the collective are doing it from a place of absolute like like a, a an inborn need to help make other people's lives better right and so we make resources available right yes. I, I cannot i cannot give direct financial advice to someone who i'm not advising because legally that is not something i can do but I can give as much as possible to point people in the right direction, right? And then work with the people who who can pay me, right? And then that allows me to then help more people. And that's the that's the cycle. Yeah, I mean, for me, I will say it started. I, I have I sort of talk about my click moments in my in my TEDx talk about those moments of awakening and how I was compelled, right? You were, you didn't mm -hmm. use that exact word, but you used your own version that I was compelled as I started to understand. And I recognized that there were tools and teachings, um, not just around money, just about freedom, yeah. <laughs> about, you know, the ability to understand that I could make conscious choices to recognize that my choices had an impact on others, that the choices other people had made in their lives created possibilities for me, mm -hmm. I knew there was no way I could do anything uh, else but continue to follow that path forward, right? And everything that I ever learned or every tool or skill that was um, liberating for me, I always immediately felt compelled to share with friends, with family, et cetera. And so in my life, whether I am, I, and I still teach online university classes, I feel very strongly about still being, you know, a servant in that particular way, being able to be with young people. Then I have my private clients, uh, which is the bulk of my work. 
Um, but knowing that I am still teaching and, you know, I may be teaching sociology and gender women's studies, but I think the truth is my students understand it's a much bigger picture. I am truly teaching the, the notion of consciousness raising and going into, um, you know, conscious action in the world um, from the books to, you know, my talks very similarly. It's like, there are, I want to offer every single possibility for wherever someone's going to come in and start their journey. There is something here. Um, and, you know, and what I offer that you can do in the same way for you or, or, you know, so many other people in this space. So I think that's important to, to remind people there is, a possibility for every single person listening to have their next step. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, and stay diligent, stay consistent, and be really clear on why and pair it with action. Oh, so that is a beautiful place to um to wrap this conversation up because we could go, I mean, I seriously I could talk to you for another hour um <laughs> so easily. We just scratch the surface, I feel like, yes. but where, uh, where can people find you? Where can they reach out to you? What's, what's the thing um, that you want to share with the audience today? Yeah, I am most active over on Instagram, which is Mel Mel Klein. That's K-L-E-I-N. And yes, that is Mel twice. So Mel Mel Klein on Instagram. And then my website, Melanie C. Klein. I always say, remember there's a C because the first Melanie Klein was a psychotherapist from about a hundred years ago. So you might, <laughs> you might find her if you Google me. So uh, MelanieCKlein.com. And uh, those would be the primary places that you could find me. And of course my, my TEDx, which is conscious empowerment and collective liberation. If you uh, either go into the show notes or you can simply Google Melanie Klein, conscious empowerment and collective liberation or Melanie Klein TEDx. Yeah. There's some nuggets in there. Yes. Yes. So beautiful. Highly encourage everyone to go listen to that. Well, Melanie, thank you so much for being here with me today. And I hope we get to do it again soon. Thanks for having me, Hannah. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah. H-A-N-N-A-H at expansiveceo.com and tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, you can find ways to work with me at expansiveceo.com and at xsquaredwealthplanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, wealthplanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.